This is Christmas Day. Some of you are fighting to stay focused on what we are singing, reading, praying, and preaching this morning. There are many exciting things that lie ahead for you this, this Sunday afternoon. And it's hard to keep your mind here as we gather to worship. On the other hand, some of you may actually be dreading what lies ahead in the work of preparing and clean up and, and loving through strained relationships that maybe aren't not so good right now. Nevertheless, let us pray this morning. Let us ask our God to bring us into His presence through His Word and by His Spirit. Please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise You and we worship You this morning. We see in Your Word specifically that in the fullness of time, You dispatched Your Son. You sent Him forth. We celebrate that occurrence this morning, Father, and I pray that you'd help us to see you more than we've ever seen you before, not because of me and my fumbling comments and, and statements, Lord. I, you know me as a weak man, but your spirit is mighty and, and is powerful, and your word is a double-edged sword, living and active, and it penetrates, and I ask you, Lord, please to penetrate each of our hearts with your word and reveal yourself to us. You are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen. Now this may seem like an odd scripture to dig into for a Christmas message. And perhaps it is. But there was something about a particular phrase in verse 4 that echoed over and over in my mind. And it kept bringing me back to the amazingly and perfectly timed event of the birth of Jesus Christ. Then spilling out from that phrase in the next two verses are descriptions of gifts that are so magnificent and so generous that nothing on earth at any time in history could ever begin to compare with. So, we read of the timing and the purpose of the coming of Christ. And we read of the wonderful gifts He has bestowed. That sounds pretty Christmassy to me. So let's see if we can get there together. Please start with me back in Galatians chapter 3 with verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Paul has given us a lot to grab hold of here about the law of God. First of all, thank you. First of all, we see here that the law of God does not nullify God's promise to Abraham or to his offspring. The promise is still sure that he has given him. And the law does not interfere with or diminish the promise of God. The promise he gave to Abraham to make him a blessing to many nations. But then verse 22 
gives us cause for concern. Look at verse 22. The phrase, Scripture has confined all under sin. What that does is it pictures really the entirety of mankind trapped like a school of minnows in a fisherman's net. There is no way out. All have sinned. We are surrounded by the law. And this same drumbeat of sin revealed by the law resonates throughout the entire Old and New Testament. For instance, Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your sins have made a separation from you and your God, and your iniquities have turned His face from you so that He will not hear. But Romans 3, Romans 3, verse 9 through 19. Turn with me there, please. Romans 3, 9 through 19 captures it most dramatically. This predicament, this predicament that many most are completely unaware of. Verse 9 in chapter 3 of Romans. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And listen to this. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Why? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Then in Romans 3.20, Paul succinctly writes what he is saying here also in Galatians. Verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Then we go back to Galatians 3 and we read, Therefore the law was our tutor. Something that would instruct us, reveal to us. To bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. The law was never meant to save. The law of God cannot save. It was given To show us how desperately you and I need saving. That is what the law is all about. It was meant to reveal the perfection and holiness of God. And to show us the deep sin and wickedness of man. Which separates us from God. And brings us to an eternal hell. That is the result of sin. The law was written for me. Me. And for you. To reveal these things. James 1 verses 23 through 25. Gives the picture here of a mirror. It says a man does not look at a mirror. And then walk away and do nothing. If I get up in the morning. And and I look at my face. And I've got a mess here. My hair is always in place. But my face isn't. (laughs) But I look at that. And then I just walk away. What a fool. 
I don't wipe the stuff off. I don't get cleaned up. I don't. The law is there to reveal to us something far greater than any mess on my face. It is to reveal to us the wickedness and the sinfulness of my life. Now, I understand. You likely don't think about this in the midst of decorating the Christmas tree. Or while you're drinking a nice cup of hot chocolate. Or while you're out Christmas caroling or unwrapping presents. But that message is the heart of the coming of the Son of God. Why would we sing songs about a coming Savior? Why would we do that? Most people who sing these beautiful Christmas carols, many of them containing solid truth about God, have no sense of needing a Savior. They may want a Savior, but mainly to save them from the financial disaster they have created with credit cards in December, or saving from a frightening culture of growing crime and perversion, or saving their jobs or relationships, or a number of other threats to our well-being. But few, few men and women have looked into the law of God and seen that they desperately need saving from their own sin. What did the angel tell Joseph about the son that would be born to Mary? Matthew 1 verse 21, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. The law exposes us to our desperate need of a Savior, but only Jesus saves. Galatians 3 verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. Not only are men saved by Jesus Christ through faith in Him, those who turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus are radically changed. They become sons and daughters of God. All status differences from class, race, or gender, they disappear. God's people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation become one kingdom, the kingdom of God. And if you belong to Christ, you also have become heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Now, in the scriptures this morning that were read, Paul presents what we would call an earthly analogy. It's a way to give us clearer understanding of an eternal spiritual truth. And these truths that come up in these next few verses are so amazing. Look at Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. We have here a child, he begins no better than a slave. We have a transformation by a human father, though at some point. Verse 1 again, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. What does Paul mean by this? Is a child, is a child literally in no better position than a slave? 
The child mentioned here, by definition, is a very young boy who is not even at the age that he could speak. The general idea is that such a child was under the instruction and the management of others. Although he was a son with legal rights as an heir, he was not considered the heir until he had become of age and had undergone training and preparation. In reality, in reality, this son was expected to serve and submit to guardians and stewards who were in authority over him. But these managers were usually slaves themselves. Those family slaves, wrote one commentator, would have virtually full charge of the child's education, training, and welfare. The child was subservient to them and could do nothing without their permission and go nowhere without their companionship. End quote. So Paul describes it. The son really has no more in the way of rights and authority than a slave. In fact, the son was under the authority of slaves. That is, until verse 2, when it reads, until the time appointed by the Father. Now this time appointed by the Father marked a sweeping transformation of the Father's appointed time. In Jewish culture, this most often occurred on the first Sabbath after the twelfth birthday of the boy. It is what we call the bar mitzvah. From that point on, the son had the rights and responsibilities of an adult. But now, follow with me in verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is the heart of what we want to look at this morning. Even so, the transformation here is by the Almighty God. And transformed from what? Well, originally, what does that scripture say we were? It says we were slaves. We were slaves. There are several interpretations of what Paul means when he writes of the elements of the world or the elementary principles of the world or the elemental things of this world. But Paul seems to be speaking here about basic practices of religious attempts to please God or the gods. Now this includes Jews following the law to make themselves accepted as righteous by God. But it also includes heathens, those whose heathen religious practices were used to please pagan gods. Paul shows no political correctness here. He holds nothing back. He says, all of these are worthless. I don't care whether you're coming from a legalistic, Judaistic requirement by the law, or whether you're coming from practices of burning incense and sacrifices to pagan wooden idols. It is worthless. It accomplishes nothing. Listen to Paul's description of these elements of the world. Look in verse 9 in chapter 4. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? He's asking a question here. Do you want to go back to that? In fact, I would tell you not only are religious attempts at doing good deeds 
futile in pleasing God. They are actually slave masters. If that is what you do to reach God, you are in bondage. You are no closer to God than the pagan offering food and incense to his wooden idols. Now that sounds like a miserable way to live. But believe me, it is a terrifying way to die. But, verse 4, but, that very small, but liberating and game-changing single word opens a whole new world. But, here it signals that no matter what has gone on, what has been done, no matter how low or how high or empty life may be, God is here. God is sovereign and God is moving. But, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come. The time of transformation. Now this little statement is an exploding magnification of the principle of verse 2, which says at the date appointed by the Father for the child. In verse 2, that was a time of sweeping transformation. But that is nothing compared to this time that is set forth by God the Father. The fullness of time. Nothing in history happens outside of the time and intention of God. Now that is a hard truth to swallow. It's a hard truth to swallow at times when we are heartbroken at the loss, as we heard this morning, of a father, grandfather, or the loss of a child. Or when we have just been notified that we are no longer needed or employed. Or when we watch tragic calamities unfold that impact the lives of thousands from natural disaster. At other times, it is the greatest comfort imaginable to know that God is in control and we have no need to fear. However, our perception of God's sovereign reign, whether we like it or we do not like it, has no impact at all as to whether it exists. His sovereign dominion is unalterable, even by our lack of faith. As one commentator declared, when the law had fully accomplished its purpose of showing man his utter sinfulness and inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness, God ushered in a new era, era of redemption. End quote. Now, I'd really like for you to pay special attention. Here are three unlikely contributors God used to set up this moment as a fullness of time in which He would send forth His Son. First of all, Babylon. How could that be? How would they contribute to God's fullness of time? Well, because of the Babylonian destruction of Judah and Jerusalem 600 years before the coming of Christ, Israel's people were taken back to Babylon as captives from far from their homeland with their temple utterly in ruins. Synagogues developed for worship, education, legal courts, and fellowship. For a synagogue to appear in a community, there had to be at least 10 male Jewish adults. Then they could have a synagogue. And so they began to spread in very many different places. At this time also, the Old Testament was also assembled by Ezra and other priests. After they had returned from Babylon, 
sometime after 538 B.C. So the Old Testament, upon the return, began to be put together. The Old Testament Word of God then gave His people clear proclamation of the coming Messiah. Babylon. Secondly, Rome. Now, biblical historian J. Arnold records this, and I quote, The armies of Rome had conquered the then-known Western world and had established Roman law throughout the empire. The political unity of the empire and the long peace had fostered commerce, which in turn sent businessmen all over the Roman world. This great empire prepared the physical scene for the spread of the gospel in the following four ways. First of all, Pax Romana. It gave peace in place of constant tribal warfare. Rome ruled with an iron fist, but there was a peace. Secondly, it built a great network, network of roads and bridges that made travel possible all over the then known world. Up until that point, we didn't, men and women did not have access to places that when Rome took over, all of a sudden, the world was reachable. All roads would lead to Rome, and Rome's roads went everywhere. People could access all portions of the known world. Thirdly, it cleared the sea of pirates so that trade by sea and travel by ship became common practice. Who do we know that used ships a lot in their ministry? Paul. He was going from place to place constantly. So because of Rome's dominion of the sea, it was possible to take these trips back and forth on commercial ships without any fear of pirates. And fourthly, it protected its citizens from robbers and rioting, essentially anarchy throughout the land. These means of communications were set up by Rome to move her armies, but God used them to spread the gospel of peace throughout the world, end quote. The third contributor, Greece, for communicating the good news of Christ, the time was perfect. Greek culture and language what we call the Koine Greek or Common Greek, had been deeply embedded throughout the known world by the victories of Alexander the Great. Greek was a common language and one that facilitated clear yet complex meaning in thought. And I quote, Koine Greek became the commercial language of the Roman Empire. The Greek language is considered by some to have been the best medium ever known for expressing theological and philosophical ideas. What timing. One more I'd like to add. Earlier this week, I came across yet one more indicator. One more that God sent his, forth His Son in the fullness of time. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus reigned over the Roman Empire from 29 B.C. to 14 A.D. This covered the time of the birth of Christ and the early years of His childhood. While the true Son of God was living and maturing in obscurity, Unknown in a tiny Galilean village called Nazareth, the imposter son of God was cultivating the worship of the emperor from the most powerful throne on earth in the capital city of Rome. Think about these things occurring simultaneously. Listen to this public declaration regarding Caesar Augustus expressed by Paulus Fabius Maximus, a first century Roman senator. I quote, Whereas providence that orders all our lives has in her display of concern and generosity in our behalf adorned our lives with the highest good, Augustus, 
whom she has filled with virtue for the benefit of humanity and has in her beneficence granted us and those who will come after us a Savior who has made war to cease and who shall put everything in peaceful order. And whereas Caesar, when he was manifest, transcended the expectations of all, of all who had anticipated the good news, not only by surpassing the benefits conferred by his predecessors, but by leaving no expectation of surpassing him to those who would come after him. With the result that the birthday of our God signaled the beginning of the good news for the world because of him. Here's some interesting phrases in that statement. This Caesar Augustus, adopted by Julius Caesar, Julius, who was known as the divine Julius, Caesar Augustus was also himself called son of the divine, son of God. Rome boasted providence as a goddess, Caesar as savior, the reign of Caesar as gospel good news, and they proclaimed his unsurpassable greatness in caring for the people. No one would ever match, they would say. But only the true son of God could And did provide what Caesar never did. At this perfectly prepared time in history. What did God do? It says that he sent forth his son. This is the means of transformation. We have the timing. Now we have the means. And by means I mean who or what was the agent. Or the tool that caused transformation. If we want to drive a nail. What do we use? We use a hammer. If a farmer wants to move a heavy load. What does he do? He hooks up a strong tractor to that and pulls it across the field. When the safety of a nation is at risk and a major military strike or covert operation is required, the country's leader will dispatch the most skilled, dependable force available. A group like the Navy SEALs or the Army Rangers to accomplish the greatest feat At the highest cost. With the most critical impact in all of history. God the Father sent an agent of transformation. God sent forth His Son. He did not create His Son at this moment in history. That Son exists eternally. That Son is unbound by time or location or data. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. That Son is the creator. That Son is the sustainer of all that exists, has existed, and will exist. That Son whom He sent forth is known as Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That Son, that Son was dispatched from the throne in heaven. That son was dispatched from the throne in heaven by having him born of a woman. The substance of Christ. His birth was miraculous. And I'd like to point out three aspects. It was miraculous in that it was not the natural God-designed result of the union of a man and a woman. The son was born of a woman in a manner unlike any man before or after him. God's angel Gabriel lays out this plan to Mary in Luke chapter 1, 31 through 35. And many of you have read this this year, or in the last few weeks, I'm sure. 
And behold, says Gabriel, you to Mary will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Uh, let me just stop. Do you, do you picture this at all in your mind? You've got this little nobody girl. And this angel is telling these things about the most magnificent person that will ever walk the planet. Who is she? Who am I? What, what glorious things are being said? How could she receive these? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What a, what a, a succinct way of explaining this to Mary. She gets the message of, of the greatness and then he lays it out. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In this way, Christ would be fully God and He would be fully man. Arguably, even more significant is that Jesus, the incarnate, which means in the flesh, Son of God, was born of a woman so that He would be man. He must be fully man, so that he would be the qualified substitute to take the place of all mankind. As he hung in place on that cross, he was our substitute. A man must represent man. On that cross, the man Jesus Christ received the violent wrath of God's punishment against the sin of mankind. He must be man. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery or to be grasped and held on to, to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a slave. And he came in the likeness of men. And he was found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. Galatians 3.13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Only a man could take the curse of a man. That man was Jesus. And thirdly, God's Son was born of a woman so that he could literally die as a sin sacrifice. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That was he was made for. Crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That means essentially that he became a flesh and blood man. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. On this Christmas day, think long and hard on the fact, please do, at some point, that God the Son became a man 
He lived as a man and he died as a man so that he would be our substitute. Our substitute for the wrath of God which would cause his death. Then think about this. God who created the entire universe and each tiny element within it out of nothing. Think of him, he who is the embodiment of good. He determined morality. He wrote the book on ethics. That very God who gave Moses the Ten Commandments, that God subjected himself to the very laws he had himself determined. It says, not only was he born of a woman, but he was born under the law. Here we see the subjection of Christ. From his very conception in the womb of Mary onward, Christ was required to obey the law. If he were to please God, he must obey every overarching principle and every tiny detail of the law of God. In other words, he must be perfect at every moment and in every area of life. One failure of any degree, great or small, would disqualify Jesus as a sufficient, perfect sacrifice for the sin of all who would trust in Him. He would have been disqualified, but He proved Himself worthy of that trust. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 says, 21 says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4, 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3, 5, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. All of this, all of this was so that Christ could redeem those who were under the law. Verse 5, Galatians 4, verse 5. The purpose of Christ then, was to redeem slaves under the law. Now redeem, personally, is one of my favorite words in the Scriptures. It is one of the most exhilarating words in the New Testament. It means to buy back and was used for the purchase of freedom for slaves. That's why I love it. It is not simply a commercial or business term. Redeem often signified the beginning of new life. It means freedom. It meant escape from bondage and destruction. Everything changed for good eternally when you or I am redeemed by Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. It was futile, he's saying. You weren't redeemed from that. You weren't purchased out of that by something trashy like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Redemption. But redemption is not the only great gift provided by the Son of God. So rich and lavish was the fullness of time that Christ not only redeemed His followers from bondage, but He did so that He could then adopt those slaves who were redeemed. He redeemed us and then He adopts us. Five 
Verse 5 says that we might receive the adoption as sons. One author defined adoption as a man's giving the status of sonship to someone who is not his natural child. Another definition reads, adoption is the act of bringing someone who is the offspring of another into one's own family. And some of you have experienced that directly, either as adopting or being those who have been adopted. You understand this in in a deeper way than some of the rest of us have experienced. God accomplished adoption for His children by sending forth His Son in the fullness of time. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. Ephesians 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him love, in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Matthew Henry said, For He was sent to redeem us, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might no longer be accounted and treated as slaves, but as sons grown up to maturity. The London Baptist Confession Catechism presents this question. What is adoption? The answer is given. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all privileges of the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? In legal adoptions, my understanding is that the onus to to prove that one is worthy of the process of adoption falls upon who? It falls upon the parents. The parents who desire to adopt. These couples, they must often prove through rigorous interviews and inspections that they have the financial means and can provide an appropriate environment for raising a child. That process can take a year. It can take years. But in the adoption court of God, he who desired to adopt has full authority. A man or woman must be qualified to enter into adoption By the holy, perfect God. The qualification to enter God's adopting proceeding is perfect sinlessness. Many people balk at that when I share that. We share that often on the street. How can you be adopted by God? You must be perfect. Psalm 5 verse 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You are of pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Would anyone, would anyone rightly adopt a child with whom you had no intention to dwell, you had no intention to live with and bring into your family? Would anyone adopt a child who you would never even look at? Of course not. But the law of God has shown us that we are sinners. We are wicked and we are evil by nature. The demand of God is impossible. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can ever qualify for adoption. But God has provided a way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Again, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates, He shows, manifests His love for us in this. How did He do it? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we didn't prove our lot. We had not come closer on the status and the ladder of the law. Not at all. God died for us in Christ while we were sinners. God has done what is humanly impossible. He has qualified us for adoption by His Son. Such a dramatic transformation bears consequences. Galatians 4 verse 6. It says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. It is impossible for a human father to transfer his character into the heart of the child he adopts. That cannot be done. As much as perhaps you would like to, it cannot be done. But God not only can, He does. He sends the Spirit of Christ the Holy Spirit into the hearts of His adopted children. That God, our Father, does what no adopted parent can. He sends His Spirit into our lives to transform us into what He desires to become like Him. The consequences of transformation. The entrance of God's Spirit into a son's heart. And this isn't an isolated promise found only in Galatians. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. God has sealed us with His Holy Spirit. He is our Father. He is not a distant God who looks from afar. He gets into us. He knows us. By His Spirit, God dwells in us and He lives within us. The New Testament Gospel writer Matthew declares this about the coming of Jesus, the Son of God. Matthew 1.23 Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? What does it mean? God with us. That is what Christ is. He is God with us, in us, abiding through the Holy Spirit. Because of such a relationship, God's children will cry out, this verse says, Abba, Father. This is the cry of a son's heart. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as a son, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. If this this is a totally foreign concept for you, perhaps you have never realized the relationship with your Father that the Word of God describes. And dig, understand, 
begin to cry to your Abba Father. Or perhaps, perhaps you have never known such a relationship at all. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Either way, I, I beg you, seek Him. Seek Him to find that relationship. Lay yourself out dependent upon Him and no other, that you too would cry out, Abba, Father. If you do not know Him in that way, come to Him. All who seek Him will find Him. And before we go any further, we must not overlook the precious presence of our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In God's providence, He has placed our time on the campus at WSU on Tuesday nights to coincide with a group of proclaimed Christians who deny the existence of the Trinity. No matter how many examples in Scripture we have shown them of the simultaneous presence and working of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They deny it. But here in the fullness of time, God the Father, it says, sent forth His Son to redeem us and provide for our adoption. And then He sent forth His Holy Spirit to live in us, secure us, and convince us that we are His. You cannot get around this. We have such a great God, and He does exist in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see their roles. Different, diverse, but effective right here in these scriptures. And herein also lies the key to what the Muslim, the legalist, and the Roman Catholic cannot accept about the amazing grace of God. On many occasions, we have shared the good news of Christ to those who upon hearing it do not see it as good news. They oppose such a free and completely God-provided grace because, they say, if the gospel is fully the grace of God and your sins are forgiven completely, past, present, and future, then, then I would live like the devil because there's no consequence. You see the fallacy in what we've read this morning. If forgiveness from sin was all there was to the gospel, perhaps their case would bear weight. But it is not the only thing. Not only are we forgiven forever by Christ's one great sacrifice of Himself, He then sends His Spirit into our hearts to build relationship with Him that desires what He desires, that is compelled to know Him, that repents when we sin, and that grows in obedience. As adopted children, our love is expressed to our Father in obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, He is the one who loves me. And I too will love him and show myself to him. Not only does Christ redeem us from sin, past, present, and future, but he places in us his Holy Spirit so that we have a new, profoundly alive relationship with him. Do you have that? Do you have that Abba Father relationship with a saving God? The final verse this morning is a declaration that Christ's transformation makes an end of slavery and beginning of sonship. The last verse, verse 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. It's a clear if-then proposition, an if-then condition. 
If you are a son or a daughter, then you are no slave. You are an heir. But an heir to what? Romans 8, again, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. That's one of the inheritances. We will be glorified together with Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing is ours in the heavens. And 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. A little more down here on earth. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, and you may escape the corruption that is in in the world caused by evil desires. Conclusion. A final question. When did this fullness of time come? That Galatians 4 speaks of. Before I read to you the day of the fullness of time, let me read to you the darkest day in all of history. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Up to this point, as you would see in verse 25, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They walked with God in the garden. All was perfect. There was no death. There was no sin. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That had never happened. Never. Not even the thought of that had happened. And now they were fleeing from the God who had loved them. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, gave to be with me, 
She gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And you see here a tiny glimmer of light. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We sometimes call that the Proto-Evangelium, the first message of the gospel. You don't see it all clearly there. But God was not going to leave them on this darkest day on earth. And now, from the moment in which God dispatched His most trustworthy agent, His very own Son, to infiltrate this planet in order to redeem and adopt men and women who were slaves to sin. Men like you and me. Please stand with me. Not simply in honor of the Word of God, which that is worthy of. Let's stand in honor as we read the method and the means by which the agent of God entered the world. Luke 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Remember that name? That all the world should be registered. This census was, first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. The agent had entered the battlefield, the world, to capture men and women like you and I and pay our way out of slavery by the death of his own self, to die on that cross in our place, and then to rise victorious from that grave that we would have the same great inheritances and privileges that he has enjoyed. What a Savior. What a story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you that you have given us. It's, in some ways, it's such a, a, a simple explanation of such a great thing that you have done. Lord, I pray that you would work in us, that we would make this Christ known while we still have opportunity, whether young or old, Lord, that we would see our time as brief and the message is so important and that eternity awaits and that we would not hold back in, in fear or in pride, but that we would proclaim Christ today and forevermore like we never have before. May you be exalted. And Lord, may we praise you. May we grow in our love for you as our Abba Father. Praise you. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you have sent to dwell within us. 
In your powerful name we pray. Amen.